Psalm 51. O Lord, whose grace no limits comprehend, sweet Lord, whose mercies stand from measure free, to me that grace, to me that mercy send, and wipe, O Lord, my sins from sinful me. O cleanse, O wash my foul iniquity, cleanse still my spots, still wash away my stainings, till stains and spots in me leave no remainings. For I, alas, acknowledging, do know my filthy fault, my faulty filthiness, to my soul's eye incessantly doth show, which done to thee, to thee I do confess, just judge, true witness, that for righteousness thy doom may pass against my guilt awarded, thy evidence for truth may be regarded. My mother, lo, when I began to be, conceiving me, with me did sin conceive, and as with living heat she cherished me, corruption did like cherishing receive. But lo, thy love to purest good doth cleave, an inward truth, which hardly else discerned, my truant soul in thy hid school hath learned. Then as thyself to lepers hast assigned, with hyssop, Lord, thy hyssop, purge me so, and that shall cleanse the leprey of my mind. Make over me thy mercy's streams to flow, so shall my whiteness scorn the whitest snow. To ear and heart send sounds and thoughts of gladness, that bruised bones may dance away their sadness. Thy ill-pleased eye from my misdeeds avert, cancel the registers my sins contain, create in me a pure, clean, spotless heart, inspire a sprite where love of right may reign. Ah, cast me not from thee, take not again thy breathing grace, again thy comfort send me, and let the guard of thy free sprite attend me. So I to them a guiding hand will be, whose faulty feet have wandered from thy way, and turned from sin, will make return to thee, whom turned from thee sin erst had led astray. O God, God of my health, O do away my bloody crime, so shall my tongue be raised to praise thy truth. Enough cannot be praised. Unlock my lips, shut up with sinful shame, then shall my mouth, O Lord, thy honor sing. For bleeding fuel for thy altar's flame, To gain thy grace, what boots it me to bring? Burnt offerings are to thee no pleasant thing. The sacrifice that God will hold respected Is the heartbroken soul, the sprite dejected. Lastly, O Lord, howso I stand or fall, Leave not thy loved Zion to embrace, but with thy favor build up Salem's wall, and still in peace maintain that peaceful place. Then shalt thou turn a well-accepting face to sacred fires with offered gifts perfumed, till even whole calves on altars be consumed. Psalm 58 and call ye this to utter what is just, you that of justice hold the sovereign throne. And call ye this to yield, O sons of dust, to wronged brethren every man his own. O oh, no, it is your long malicious will, now to the world to make by practice known, 
with whose oppression you the balance fill, just to yourselves, indifferent else to none. But what could they, who even in birth declined from truth and right to lies and injuries, to show the venom of their cankered mind the adder's image scarcely can suffice, nay scarce the aspic may with them contend, on whom the charmer all in vain applies his skilfulst spells, I missing of his end, while she self-deaf and unaffected lies. Lord, crack their teeth, Lord, crush these lions' jaws, so let them sink as water in the sand. When deadly bow their aiming fury draws, shiver the shaft ere past the shooter's hand. So make them melt as the dishoused snail, or as the embryo whose vital band breaks ere it holds, and formless eyes do fail to see the sun, though brought to lightful land. O let their brood, a brood of springing thorns, be by untimely rooting overthrown, ere bushes waxed they push with pricking horns, as fruits yet green are oft by tempest blown. The good with gladness this revenge shall see, and bathe his feet in blood of wicked one, while all shall say the just rewarded be, there is a God that carves to each his own. Psalm 57 Thy mercy, Lord, Lord, now thy mercy show. On thee I lie, to thee I fly. Hide me, hive me, as thine own, till these blasts be overblown, which now do fiercely blow. To highest God I will erect my cry, who quickly shall dispatch this all. He shall down from heaven send, from disgrace me to defend his love and verity. My soul encaged lies with lions brood, villains whose hands are fiery brands, teeth more sharp than shaft or spear, tongues far better edge do bear than swords to shed my blood. As high as highest hem can give thee place, O Lord, ascend, and thence extend with most bright, most glorious show over all the earth below the sunbeams of thy face. Me to entangle every way I go, their trap and net is ready set. Holes they dig, but their own holes pitfalls make for their own souls. So, Lord, oh, serve them so. My heart prepared, prepared is my heart to spread thy praise with tuned lays. Wake my tongue, my lute awake, thou my heart the consort make, myself will bear a part. Myself, when first the morning shall appear, with voice and string, so will thee sing. That this earthly globe, and all treading on this earthly ball, my praising notes shall hear. For God, my only God, thy gracious love is mounted far above each star. Thy unchanged verity, heavenly wings do lift as high, as clouds have room to move. As highest, highest heaven can give thee place, O Lord, ascend, and thence extend, with most bright, most glorious show, over all the earth below, the sunbeams of thy face. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, 
and Michael Fox. So the same Hello, and welcome to episode 318 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Matthew Block, and I'm your host for today. I'm editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine and communications manager for the International Lutheran Council. With me today is David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how was the Easter break for you? It was good. It was quiet. Um, We had a stomach bug at our house, um, which sort of... uh, knock the bottom out of all of our uh, end of Holy Week plans. Um, but uh, it, it ended up being a, a, a good time uh, a good time at home. Uh, and so not not what we'd hoped after having missed Easter last year. <laughs> um, but uh, good nonetheless. Yeah, we likewise weren't able to uh, to to get to a an actual in-person service, but we held matins together as the family and, and uh, celebrated in that way. Well, normally I'd uh, introduce Michael Farmer at this point, but he's unable to be with us today. So instead of a full chord today, you'll have to settle for a dyad. Uh, in this episode, we're talking about the Sidneyan Psalter, which is a, a metrical translation of the Psalms, with the first 43 Psalms written by Philip Sidney and the rest composed by his sister Mary. Today we're going to look at a few of the psalms written by Mary Sidney specifically, or or Mary Herbert, as uh, is her married name. A bit of a caveat here, while I'm hosting this episode, I'm by no means an expert on Mary Sidney Herbert, or her brother for that matter. Um, But this book of psalms has been on my to-read list for a while, and I thought it might be fun to to chat with someone brighter than me what some of these poems mean. I also want to highlight especially... um, JCAA Rathmel's 1963 introduction to to the Sydneyan Psalms because I'm I'm relying on that a fair bit in some of what we'll talk about today. Before we get into the discussion itself though David, do you have any more experience with Mary Sidney or her brother than I do? I read I read this this set of psalms for my um for my comprehensive exams for my PhD studies, but those were completed um, oh golly, uh, over, over, uh, over 10 years ago, just, just about 10 years ago. Um, and I haven't revisited them since. Mm. And it was along with a spate of, of other Sydney. So I, I remember, um, I remember enjoying them for the amount of time that I had to spend with them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm actually really happy that you've you've given uh, given me a reason to go back and visit because I re- I remember enjoying them, but beyond that, I didn't have any very specific memories of having actually kind of settled down into the close reading of any of them in particular. Um, hmm. Our listeners who who have had the experience of comprehensive exams um, in in literature know that it's just a whole lot of undigested reading. (laughs) Happily, I have not uh, gone through that process. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it's fair to say that of the two Sydney siblings, Philip and Mary, Philip is the more famous. His sonnet sequence, Astrophil and Stella, is well known, as is his defense of poesy. And he's really remembered as one of the literary giants of the Elizabethan era. Um, so, but, but before we study the Psalms themselves, I thought it might make sense to, to dig into uh, the life story a little bit of who Mary Herbert was. So I'm going to just give us a little bit of a rundown here, David, but feel free to jump in if you have something to add or if you think I'm missing something important. Sure. The Sydney and Psalter began as a project of, of Philip Sydney specifically. Um, and it's not exactly clear when he began working on this verse translation of the Psalms into English, but his own contribution to the project really ended in, in 1586, uh, because that's when he died. Uh, <laughs> he was wounded in a battle with Spanish forces in the Netherlands, and he died a few weeks later of gangrene. And at that time, he had completed just 43 of the Psalms. But that wasn't really the end of his his literary legacy. His sister, Mary, takes on kind of the role of literary executor uh, for the publication of his works. All of them were published posthumously. And uh, she also, of course, took upon herself to complete the translation of the Psalms that we're talking about today. At the age of 16, Mary had married and become the Countess of Pembroke. From that position, she became deeply influential in the literary scene of the day through her involvement with a group called the Wilton Circle. Uh, we might think of that as something like the Inklings. It was a group of writers who met at Wilton House under Mary's direction for reading, discussion, and, and really just uh, networking. Um, and so the people who would show up to these sorts of things included, of course, Philip Sidney, but also Edmund Spencer, Michael Drayton, Samuel Daniel, and uh, a number of other people. Beyond that, literary group, Mary was also uh, involved in the literary scene as a patron. Um, and she actually is the recipient of more dedications of, of literary works than any other non-royal female of the period. Um, but she wasn't just in these discussion groups. She wasn't just a patron. She's also producing her own literary work, which is uncommon at the time. Uh, she made an English translation of a Huguenot uh, work entitled A Discourse of Life and Death. She also published The Tragedy of Antony, which is um, an, an English translation of a French play, uh, which went on to, to influence Shakespeare and others uh, on the story of Antony and Cleopatra. She also contributed a few poems and translations to other published volumes, I think including a translation of Petrarch's Triumph of Death. But otherwise, her work was primarily shared and, and known and appreciated in manuscript form. The Psalter itself, which we're talking about today, wasn't actually published during Mary's lifetime, but it was well known uh, at the time anyhow. In fact, one of the surviving manuscripts was apparently intended as a presentation copy for Queen Elizabeth. Mary certainly had a great deal of love for her brother and interest in his work, um, and that's kind of what she attributes to the reason behind finishing the Psalms. In a dedicatory verse on the psalm, she attributes the greatness of the book as a whole to her brother by double interest, since some of the poems were written directly by him, while what is done of mine, she says, was inspired by thee, thy secret power impressed. There's, I think, some, some false modesty in this, um, saying her mortal stuff doesn't really compare with his, which is divine. But uh, she still asks him to receive these hymns with all their imperfections and... Uh, 
that they should have no they should bear no other name than his. She says this, but the vast majority of these poems were actually written by Mary herself. As I said, Philip just wrote 43, and Mary wrote the rest, including Psalm 119, uh, which would be itself uh, separated into 22 additional poems. So the work as a whole really does belong more to her than her brother. And we know that Mary even tweaked a few of, of Philip's poems as well. I, I, I want to say that all to kind of explain why we're talking about Mary's poems today rather than Philip's specifically. In a lot of ways, the Psalter is really her work. Um, the death of her husband in 1601 may have left her with lessened financial straits. It's debated whether or not she was less able to serve as patrons to others after this point. The records aren't really clear. Um, but she would live until 1621 when she died of smallpox at the age of 59. They held a large funeral for her at St. Paul's Cathedral, and she was subsequently buried in Salisbury Cathedral. But David, you probably know Mary Sidney, or at least her brother, better than I do. Is there anything else you'd like to add about them here? No, I think that was uh, that was very uh, very thorough, um, particularly uh, so I, in in the things that I've read about. Mary Sidney, um, some on one hand treat her as sort of the very dutiful, dutiful and um, I, I liked her phrase, literary executor um, to her more famous brother. Um, uh, others spoke in a way that um, I thought, I, I think they meant to be complimentary as if she was using the language of loyalty to her brother um, for what was really uh, the desire to get her own work out there, um, I I don't know. I've I've never if if there's any if there's any slip of if, if this um, loyalty to Philip and and sadness and mourning for Philip and sentiment about Philip if that's a mask just to get her her own work out there, um, I'd say it's a mask that never ever slips. <laughs> um, Given that he is, he's a bit older than their, her. I think like six or seven years older than her. Um, and when he dies, he's thirty-one. She's in her um, younger twenties, already married, but but younger twenties. Uh, and he had been for basically for all her life the big brother who she idolized, but who also spent a great deal of time with her. Mm -hmm. um, one of the works that uh, cir circulated in manuscript and wasn't really published until, you know, as, as with his other works, wasn't published until uh, after his death, was his romance, uh, The Arcadia, which um, in, the, uh, in his letter at the beginning of The Arcadia, uh, he, he describes how much of it was written um, – under her eye, and so the 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 in, the edition of the Arcadia that I have um, has an uh, an introduction by a, a scholar named Catherine Duncan Jones um, describes how uh, this Arcadia was probably um, written and also read um, for Mary with her friends because uh, there are these many places in the Arcadia where the, the, the voice of the narrator speaks directly to ladies, a group of ladies who are listening, right? So 
you know, you're you're just to imagine this uh, young Philip Sidney, this raconteur, this storyteller, this poet, entertaining his sister and her friends with his outrageous uh, stories of of romance and and chivalry. And this is, you know, this is the brother who died. This is the brother who went off to battle um, and perished of his wounds, you know, fought uh, uh, in in the Netherlands, right? So, you know, you, you can see why, you know, she would have such an attachment to him and to his literary legacy um, because it's one that she seems to have been um, a special kind of witness to. Um, and an audience to, and a partner in. Um, so, I I, I I I love hearing Mary talk about her brother because I, I read it as very very sincere and very heartfelt. And if she mm-hmm. is largely remembered today as Philip Sidney's little sister, um, nothing I've read of her would ever indicate that she's mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> she wants she wants she just wants to be. Philip Sidney's little sister forever and ever. Um, but she is also brilliant in her own right. Um, a patroness of the arts in her own right. Um, a poetess, uh, a translator, um, something of a scientist, apparently, um, dealing in, in, in chemistry. Yeah, She's I've read she had a, a chemistry lab in one of her houses. Yeah, I mean, just fascinating. But uh, so much of her, so much of that time, though, um, in the service of her brother's memory, which, mm-hmm. yeah. But that uh, that does bring up something. I mean, t- people today might debate, you know, what what her place was, but I don't think uh, back then people had really any doubts as to her place in, in literature, whether she was just Philip's younger sister or not, um, because a lot of a, a, a number of contemporaries reference the Sidney and Psalter. Um, so could you maybe just give us a bit of an idea of how the, the Psalms of Philip and Mary Sidney were received by the wider community? And uh, what what might they tell us about how we should read the poems? Yeah, so there there are other references to it. One that I would point to, um, which is which is one that you'd, uh, you'd referred to, Matthew, but also one that that I'd read in my in my comprehensive exams, um, which is Dunn's poem, uh, the title "Upon the Translation of the Psalms by Sir Philip Sidney and the Countess of Pembroke, his sister." So I wonder what that poem's about. Um, yeah, I, I, lo- I love these these odes with very highly, de- uh, very you know, firmly determined titles. But in his in his poem, Dunn speaks of uh, the the Psalms. Thy, thy blessed spirit fell upon these Psalms, first author in a cloven tongue, um, and so thou hast cleft that spirit to perform that work again and shed it here upon two by their bloods and by thy spirit one, a brother and a sister made by thee the organ where thou art the harmony. So, uh, you know, done. Yeah, of course he's he's you know, this is this is an ode. This is a this is a a a praising of of this tra- of this translated work um 
but he's speaking of it in terms of of inspiration uh the the clove using that image of the cloven tongues of fire from pentecost you know cloven split in two um and so the that inspiring spirit is split between two who are nonetheless um one in uh in blood and one in the spirit um he speaks of them as fulfilling uh fulfilling scripture uh those who that psalm now let the isles rejoice have both translated and applied it to both told us what and taught us how to do a long tradition in uh, english christianity of hearing the psalms speak of the islands those of the islands and seeing themselves in those passages <laughs> so here uh, philip and mary are teaching those of the islands um, to rejoice in their own language, in the language of their own day, and of their own day. They've both translated the psalm, now let the isles rejoice, and they've showed those of the isles how to do that in their own language. Um, and he speaks of of their translation uh, being a, a reforming of the psalms into their language which should in some way um be be a model of or be part of the reforming of christianity in in england uh that there's there's something about this translation of the psalms that makes um the the power of the original um manifest in the present uh in in a way that the the reformation uh, as as part of that back to the sources movement um, of the Renaissance, uh, that there's something kind of like like that going on as well. Their psalms are a mirror of what the Reformation ought to be. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty high praise from a poet uh, who who I also take seriously. Um, and yeah, I. I, I, it's it's a cool poem, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we we're gonna have links to all this stuff in the show notes, aren't we? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're totally yeah. We're gonna link all this. Go go read the Dunn poem. I think it's interesting that that passage in particular. Uh, I, I feel like Dunn is is actually suggesting that they should be using the Sydney and Psalms as the church, <laughs> like in the church, that we should stop using the other kind. That was in the text. <laughs> to be clear, Coverdale's translation, while it exists at this point, isn't part of the Book of Common Prayer yet. Mm. Um, so Dunn seems to prefer it. He he uh, would a, would a whole state present a lesser gift than some one man hath sent. In other words, why would we use something lesser when this one small thing we could all use? But uh, I like the line in that poem that you referred to, where it talks about the Sydney's. Uh, the Sydneys having both told us what and taught us how to do. They show us islanders our joy, our king. They tell us why and teach us how to sing. And uh, I think there's the two kind of meanings there, I think. You know, they, they, they told us what and how to do. I think that's a reference to composition of poetry and of sacred poetry specifically, but then also why and how we sing. Um, the, the psalms themselves, why why the psalms are 
poetry, why they're meant to be sung, and how they can be sung in an Elizabethan way. Um, there's a number of other poets, I think, and, and writers who kind of refer a bit to to what uh, what's done in the Psalms. And there's, there's a, a line I kind of like in something written by uh, John Harrington's treatise on plays. He's lamenting in this treatise that Mary's Psalms haven't been published, and that they weren't physically made into books and shipped around. And so he writes in it, he says, seeing it is already prophesied that those precious leaves those hymns that she doth consecrate to heaven shall outlast Wilton's walls. Methinks it is pity they are unpublished, but still lie enclosed within those walls like prisoners, though many have made great suit for their liberty. And, and Wilton's walls, of course, here's a reference to Wilton's house, the Wilton group of writers. But um, yeah, so uh, we do know that, as I said, the, the poems were shared widely in manuscript form. But it really did take until 1823 before the whole series of, of psalms by both Philip and Mary Sidney were published. And that's that's remarkable to me in some ways. It was remarkable also to the person who published the first edition or the first 1823 edition. But I don't think we can really ignore just how uh, well she was received. She's, she's called yeah. by a number of people just one of the, the best poets of the day but yes yeah the 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 praise of mary sydney herbert was pretty much unstinting um and yes i, I she, she is always kind of figuring herself as philip sydney's little sister um but uh that that doesn't always come off necessarily bad badly um dunn refers to her as the as playing the miriam to philip sydney's moses mm -hmm. um which you know that, that's that's a that's a pretty dignified way of putting that putting them together um <laughs> you know for a long time I, I i assumed just because of the way she speaks of philip sydney that she was the older sister and he was the younger brother um, and that she had a kind of motherly uh, attitude towards him, but in fact, it was it was it was the other way. It was the other way about. Hmm. Yeah, the relationship between the two of them is is pretty interesting to to explore. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, it's fair to say that reading the Psalms in verse is not really something we're accustomed to doing today. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about translation. I was kind of hoping here to pick Michael's brain on this topic a bit, since he's both a published poet as well as a translator. But since he can't be with us, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, we're, we're, let's just chat about it back and forth a bit. What do you think are, are some of the challenges that a, a translator really faces when you're trying to bring someone else's words and ideas into another language, especially when it comes to the subject of poetry? Well, this is a topic that I've... I've read a good, uh, a decent bit about, and and have at least some little experience in trying to um, teach uh, teach text like Beowulf with some um, recognition, some some experience of hearing the poetry of the original Old English, and then how do you convey that um, in teaching to your students? You can simply read it aloud to them. 
um, and and they can hear a bunch of noises, um, but you know it's 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 like those bits of First uh, Corinthians where someone is speaking glossolalia in the churches, but there's no translator, and so no one gets edified. Um, and even when I'm translating, you know, reading the translations, um, you know, I'm always kind of swooping in and saying, well, but literally it means this. And there's always this tension between what sounds well in modern English versus what is faithful to the, to the letter versus what, um, what poetic effects may create in uh, the audience now something like um, what the poetic effect would have made in its original audience in its original language. Right, so there's that challenge between what we might call the letter and the spirit, if you will, of well, translation. It's, it's kind of what uh, the uh, the 20th century linguist Eugene Nida uh, articulated as the difference between formal translation and dynamic equivalence. This idea that you could be very literal, which won't necessarily mean anything to the to the people whom you're translating for. But then dynamic equivalence, where you just try to get the idea across rather than staying faithful necessarily to the to the literal mm-hmm. words. I, I think this is even maybe moving into a third area in which the poet recognizes that there are there are things that are achieved, there are effects that are created by the poetic art. And it's not necessarily the literal words or the literal ideas, but um, something created by patterns of sound, by rhythms, by meters, um, by the employment of conventions that are familiar to those who understand a a language's poetry. Um, So in the history of uh, translation of the scripture, typically translation of words, or translation of ideas has kind of been um, one of the, the, the that that pair that um, sort of literal literal versus dynamic equivalence, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Nida literally was, I think, a, a Bible translator. That's that was his background. So mm-hmm. it's typically been back and forth between between those. But the poet looks at the poetry in the Bible and thinks. There is this third, there is this third thing, which is how do we, how do we create in the listener something like the feeling that the original poetry would have created with our own poetry in the language that that person speaks, um, which uh, is, it's kind of a gutsy thing uh, to say I am going to achieve in English poetry. Um, an effect that is different from the effect uh, achieved by the Hebrew poetry, but which is going to, you know, render these render these words poetic in an English way, right? Um, when the Sydneys do this, um, it was a big departure from the way Bible translation was happening at that time, but it wasn't completely unprecedented. Um, something like, uh, what would you call it? Um, maybe, 
uh, about maybe seven or eight hundred years before that. Um, something like that happened in Old English with the Old English metrical psalms. Hmm. Um, there's a a, a a a codex called the the Paris Psalter, which includes the first fifty psalms in prose translations from Latin to Old English, but Psalm fifty one to the end are Old English alliterating poetry poetic translations of the psalms um translating it into poetry that would be recognizable as poetry to an old english reader um they're not often translated into modern english because they're not considered by um sort of anglo-saxon scholars to be very good old english poetry (laughs) (laughs) but there's still that attempt to turn um to turn the psalms which are poetry in Hebrew into something that is recognizably poetry um, to to the audience of this vernacular language. That that I think is something like what the Sydneys are trying trying to accomplish um, to bring to bring the poetry back without having to school the reader in Hebrew poetry mm-hmm. and. I love that comparison because that's certainly one of the earliest earliest examples I, I'm aware of of trying to take the poetry of Hebrew and transposing it into the poetry of another language. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are a couple of more recent parallels as well at the time that the uh, the Sydneys are writing, um, but not in English exactly. Uh, there, there's there's quite a bit of this happening in. in other languages on the continent, in French, for example, mm. and there there is at least um, a, a little bit of metrical translation of the Psalms uh, in English as well. But there was a focus there on on making singable text rather than necessarily yes. constructing beautiful poetry. If if you catch the the difference, and uh, so I think I think that's uh, just kind of an interesting thing and a, and a smart thing to point out that it's not just dynamic equivalence or formal translation. There's there has to be a, a recognition of the poetic style which you're trying to bring over the the impact of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mary kind of articulates a similar theory in her dedicatory verse to her brother in in the beginning of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she says that in, in just one stanza, she talks about how Israel's king would, she believes, see his own work in the book transformed in substance, no, but superficial attire, or, or that is superficial attire. So he'd still see the same substance, David would, she believes, even if she's changing the superficial attire. And that's what she's focusing on is, is uh, the attire, the poetry, the, the beauty of the text. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to note that I don't think they necessarily knew they were doing something as radical, maybe, as... I mean, it, it was certainly radical to, to put the Psalms into poetry, but I think they believed they had a, a good justification for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, in in his defense of Posey, Philip Sidney has a, a, a brief discussion of the Psalms, 
And he, he says that the Psalms are fully written in meter, as all learned Hebrews agree, although the rules be not yet fully found. And he's, he's not wrong. It's a common idea at the time that the Psalms were written in a form of meter. It's just we didn't understand what kind of meter it was. And uh, so bringing it into English meter to them would not have seemed as odd as to us. Uh, because today, of course, we we have a clearer understanding of Hebrew poetry works, but they, it, that wasn't really understood until the 18th century. Um, the idea that you you know you have construction of lines around parallel ideas, or, or I, I like to explain it to people, saying that Hebrew poetry or the Psalms they they rhyme ideas, they don't rhyme words. The fact of that, you know, his intuition that Hebrew must have had, you know, a, a, a metric, a meter, they just hadn't figured out how to decode it yet. Um, that might have been a factually errant <laughs> assumption, but it was an excellent intuition. Um, so, something that uh, was... Yeah, I think there's some there's some parallel to that in with Augustine, who um, in his uh, in some of his writings talks about how uh, when he was not a Christian and then when he was sort of a young Christian regarded um, Old Testament poetry as as rather inferior um, because he's you know he was expecting the poetic excellence of Latin, um, but that uh, over the course of time he came to appreciate more strongly. Um, the poetic, uh, the poetic voice of the Psalms as it was coming through in the translations in which he read it. You know, Augustine didn't know Hebrew, um, mm. but there's. I, I think as someone who loves poetry, stays with the Psalms, the conviction that there's something here that is not just good ideas said truly. Um, but also said beautifully the conviction that this this must be really really good poetry if I just knew the language <laughs> is a hard conviction to shake. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look a little bit at how Mary tries to bring uh, that that beautiful poetry into the poetry of of Elizabethan England. Uh, I'd say Herbert isn't, you know, just translating the psalms. She's also interpreting them to some extent. Mm -hmm. So how does her version of Psalm 51, one of the, the penitential psalms, how does it differ from the more literal translation found in, for example, the Great Bible, which was a common or primary even translation at the time? Um, what, what does she do that's different than the actual biblical text? And maybe why does she do those things? One of the things that she's doing in Psalm 51 is ex uh, some expansions of interpretation. One of the uh, the sources that I was uh, looking at, I'm trying to remember which one it was, um, happened to mention her reliance on things like the Geneva Bible with its notes um, and uh, some of the commentaries on the Psalms. Um, and, especially, especially John Calvin's and Theodore Beza's. Yes. yes. So, I dug up Calvin's uh, commentaries on the Psalms, and oh yeah, she's she's totally reading Calvin. So that uh, that sort of importation 
of commentary just straight into the poem. Some places where we see it. Uh, she describes herself uh, as my mother uh, conceiving me with me did sin conceive as with living heat she cherished me corruption did like cherishing receive that um, that reference to warmth along with conception uh, is something that she's getting straight out of Calvin's uh, Calvin's commentary on Psalm 51 uh, in particular a uh, a footnote <laughs> uh, that actually walks through this idea of of warmth. Let's see, where is it? Um, wait, sorry, not a footnote. It's it's actually in. Yeah, yeah, this one's actually in the text. Uh, the Hebrew signifies literally hath warmed herself of me, but interpreters have very properly rendered it as hath conceived me. So Mary Herbert has been reading his uh, reading his commentary and then brings that in. Um, the footnote. Ah, here's the footnote. The footnote comes in with the leprosy. She uh, she in the psalm it talks about purge me with hyssop and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, and she talks about, then as thyself to lepers hast assigned, this is, you know, this is Mary's language, that as thyself to lepers hast assigned with hyssop, Lord, thy hyssop purge me so, and that shall cleanse the leprosy of my mind. So she's bringing into, some, into her translation something that isn't explicitly in the psalm, namely that the purging with hyssop is part of uh part of the Levitical rite for dealing with uh, for dealing with leprosy. And this is uh, this is in Calvin's uh, commentary on the Psalms, particularly in his uh, in the French commentary, the French language commentary has uh, this discussion of hyssop as part of the ceremony of sprinkling for such as were infected with leprosy and then uh, Calvin says, David, polluted with the crimes of adultery and murder, regarding himself as a man affected, affl affected with the dreadful disease of leprosy, he prays that God would sprinkle him with hyssop as the leper was sprinkled, using this figurative lang language to express his ardent desire to obtain forgiveness and cleansing by the application of the blood of Christ. So, yeah, uh, this, is, this is straight Calvin. Um, brought into uh, brought into the commentary of the psalm. She doesn't do this in all of them, but here it's 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 pretty clear. Um, she's expanding uh, the the passage in the psalm where it says, you know, sinners will be converted to you. Um, she makes it clear that the psalmist is talking about those whose faulty feet have wandered from thy way, um, it becomes very clear that the sinners, the wicked to whom the psalmist will preach, are those who have turned astray from God's truth in a way that is similar to the psalmist. Right. So he's not necessarily preaching to those um, who have never loved God, have never um, embraced God's truth, but then um, turned or drifted away from it. Instead, he's seeking to restore those whose um, 
whose fault would be similar to his own fault, um, a straying away. And then uh, at the very end, uh, he prays that God will uh, continue to preserve Zion regardless of what happens to him. And this too is straight, uh, straight out of Calvin, um, who, who regards that, that last, um, do in thy good pleasure unto Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, Calvin sees there um, a prayer on behalf of, you know, the collective people of God, a duty which he may have felt to be the more incumbent upon him for the circumstance of him having done what he could by his fall to ruin it. <laughs> um, yeah, Calvin is very clear that uh, the that David, the psalmist, as king of Israel, um, is the one who ought to be protecting Israel, who ought to be leading her and and looking to her security, and so that that final prayer on behalf of Jerusalem is a prayer that um, God's people might be spared uh, the judgment that is rightly due their king, um, that they not be held accountable or more accountable um, for his sin and that's you know that is again something that mary explicitly brings into the psalm so yeah she's sort of making explicit things that uh the 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 sources that she's reading um have taught her are implicit in the psalm she's bringing forth um those interpretations and kind of folding them back into the text and i think I think that's precisely it, this idea of expanding what's implicit in the text, or again, what what her authorities have told her is implicit in the text, making it explicit to the to the reader who's reading her poetry. Um, I think there's just a, a cup. I, I mean, you've got you've hit all the big ones. the The one other thing maybe I would mention is, um, the the part where she says unlock my lips shut up with sinful shame um obviously the the real text just talks about opening our lips and my mouth will show forth thy praise but the idea that lips should be shut up with sinful shame is of course um an allusion to isaiah where you know he needs the the coal to come and and cleanse him because he's a man of unclean lips um other minor additions, uh, it's not really, you know, expanding what's in the commentaries, but expanding a metaphor so her audience remembers it's a metaphor. Um, the, the passage where she's just talking about being washed, um, the Great Bible for verses 1 to 2 just says, Have mercy upon me, O God, after thy goodness, according unto the multitude of thy mercies. Do away mine offenses, wash me thoroughly from my wickedness, and cleanse me from my sin. But Mary Sidney Herbert, she, she gets all of that, but she gives it a very different poetic form, um, bringing in concepts of, of, oh, cleansing, oh, wash my foul iniquity, it cleanse till my spots, wash away my stainings, till stains and spots in me leave no remainings. It, it's all the same kind of concept, but what she's doing is making explicit to our reading the idea that washing is a metaphor. We're so used, even today, to using, you know, wash away my sins as a metaphor, as a that we forget that it's a metaphor. If we're being washed, it means we have grime and dirt and stain that needs dealing with. We do this all the time with language. Uh, the example that comes to mind is how in English we talk about uh, spending time with people or paying attention or wasting time. This idea that time is uh, a resource that can be spent 
or paid or wasted. Uh, you use the metaphor so much, you forget it's a metaphor. So by making us think about stains and spots that need washing, the metaphor becomes uh, present to us as readers again. But a very different kind of poem, uh, <laughs> if Psalm 50, 51 is, is this beautiful, heartfelt call to God for um, mercy, Psalm 58 is very different because it's praying for someone not ourselves, but for someone we don't like. It's one of the imprecatory psalms, and they're not exactly popular today. But Mary Sidney lived in a different place in a different time. And I think it's it's worth asking how an Elizabethan audience might have read a psalm of this sort in light of the religious tensions of the era. So, David, do you have any thoughts on that kind of thing? Well, the... The first, the first things that that I would note, this one is much closer um, to uh, to the text of the psalm that she's uh, that she's translating here. Um, I did personally, I detect less. Um, I, there, there are poetic expansions, but not, I don't, maybe not as not as many commentary sort of expansions but there are still some um, when she renders uh, sons of men early in the psalm as oh sons of dust um, there she's doing something that uh, this is not Calvin so she must have pulled this from uh, gotten this from another source but in the Hebrew it is bene Adam sons of Adam and so she instead of saying sons of men or sons of man, um, she is going back to uh, the creation of Adam in at the beginning of Genesis, in which he is made out of dust, and he is called Adam, which is this reference back to the earth from which um, the man is made. And so, uh, sons of dust, uh, she's she's excavating um, something that is that is there. Um, in the Hebrew, kind of a mini biblical theology of what it is to be human. Um, this 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 reminder of uh, dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. All right, kind of folding that back into um, the, the Psalm 58's critique of the uh, the ways in which these human oppressors have forgotten their place in in the economy of the world. Um, are are presuming upon their power, are presuming upon their positions to oppress others when they are dust, and to dust they will return. Um, in the second stanza, this one I thought was f absolutely fascinating because the psalm simply says, um, you know, they have poison-like vipers, and you know they don't listen to snake charmers like a like a blind like a, a deaf snake. They don't hear the charmer. Um, she says, to show the venom of their cankered mind, the adder's image scarcely can suffice. So the second stanza is almost challenging the sufficiency of the metaphor in the psalm, which is gutsy. <laughs> But but yeah, that's what she's doing. She's like, these guys are, they're worse than snakes. Like that, like like that's kind of mean to snakes to say they're like snakes. Like it scarcely suffices to show what their venom is like. Um, and then to the very end, there's this weird 
um, in lots of in some in the the translations that she would have had access to, uh, there was there would be something uh, something like uh, oh, what does it what does it say in the in the Great Bible? Um, Your pots be made hot with thorns. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. And here she probably is relying on John Calvin, um, who goes back to the to that passage at the end of the Psalm, you know, talking about. Uh, pots and thorns and all the rest of it, and uh, he he presents another reading, um, uh, what he thinks is a better reading from the Hebrew, um, which talks about uh, the the growth of thorn bushes before your thorns grow into a bush, um, before uh, before this. Um, this plant has reached its full mature growth. So her, her translation, air bushes waxed, they push with pricking horns as fruits yet green are oft by tempest blown. So she, she has picked up on Calvin's um, alternate reading, which talks about um, a plant being destroyed before it's reached maturity. Hmm. Um yeah, so uh, that that's that's kind of her 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 reworking of that language, but in terms of the the religious tensions, well, her brother did die fighting against the Spain, fighting against you know the Catholic Spain in the Netherlands, in order to preserve the Protestant Netherlands, right? So there's that very direct connection. Um, also, that was in. Uh, 1586, uh, October of 1586, her brother dies in that war. Um, also in 1586, uh, Mary Queen of Scots is uh, convicted of the uh, the Babington plot, which um, was being orchestrated by um, some some Roman Catholics in England in coordination with the Spanish to assassinate Elizabeth I and put. Mary on the throne and to restore uh, restore Catholicism to to England, and then uh, she's she is executed in 1587 after that plot comes to light the year before, and then in 1588 uh, England is threatened by the Spanish Armada, right? So uh, we're not really quite sure when Mary is working Mary Mary uh, uh, Sidney Herbert is working on these translations, but there certainly were um, a cluster of things, particularly around her brother's death that would draw her, her attention to the ways this Psalm might, you know, align with uh, her own world. Um, Add into that the fact that she, she seems to be reading the French version of his commentary to the Psalms. Um, and also that she translated French Protestant works, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and the French Protestants had fared, um, it had been especially hard for them, uh, you know, in the was it, 15, early 1570s is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, um, in which, you know, French Protestants are um, just butchered in the streets with mob violence and targeted assassinations. Um, so for an English Protestant, um, 
at the time, it was easy to see imprecatory psalms as something that that fit very well with their perception of the way the world was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're talking about especially English tensions with the Spanish here. It's worth noting that the king in question here, uh, who's who's in who's the head of Spain at the time, is Philip II. And Philip II was the husband of Queen Mary, um, yeah, the the one who had reverted England back to Catholicism, and uh, had, I mean, executed numerous Protestants uh, during that period. Um, it's it's I think particularly unique because uh, to consider this context because of course Queen Mary. Um, famously had a false pregnancy. And this imprecatory psalm has that passage about wishing, uh, it's a hideous kind of thing to to say, but it's wishing miscarriage on someone. And you can can really imagine, I think, Protestants of of England at this time, when it's announced that she is pregnant, that, you know, this Catholic line is going to continue, it's not going to revert back to the Protestantism that had just been, potentially, you could imagine people earnestly and honestly praying this against Mary, and it's a it's a grim thing to think about. But yeah. it's the way I think Protestants of the day might have read some of the imagery in this kind of thing. It is interesting to note that that, as I say, it's really a dreadful um, wish to wish on someone. But even in her poem, I think Mary Sidney uh, really does express the awfulness of it she she dwells on on the miscarriage and and i think we really do see both the pity and the tragedy of the thing in addition to the to the ill wishes of it um it's a hard psalm at the best of times but in this context it had additional hard things attached to it Let's look very quickly at, at one final psalm here, uh, Psalm 57, which we could describe as a psalm of lament. Um, how does the poetic form of this psalm differ from the others we've looked at? And in what ways do you think those that form complements the meaning of the psalm? Yeah, Psalm 57 is weird. Um, the rhyme scheme of each stanza is A, B, B. C C A. Right. So you've got um the the A rhyme in each stanza being as attenuated as it could be <laughs> from uh f- from the other the, the 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 two pairs of that rhyme are as separate as they could be and still be in the same stanza. Um they also tend to be uh there tends to be a longer line at the beginning. Um, the last line being a little bit shorter than that first long line. And then separating the two A lines are a, a pair of Bs, a pair of Cs, with the Bs being very short, the Cs being twice as long, and then you finally get back to A. So in each stanza, there's this constant enjambment uh, that is, the sentences are constantly being broken off by line breaks, this constant disruption of the utterance. All right. Also, this long delay until there is the sort of conclusion or completion of the second rhyme, 
all right um creating the sense of these these fragmented cries um broken up uh that uh are are waiting for a resolution and that's that's sort of what this this psalm is thy mercy lord lord now thy mercy show on me on thee i lie to thee i fly hide me hive me as thy own till these blasts be overblown which now do fiercely blow all right so finally we get back to the rhyme for show um we've had to wait for it we've had to wait wait for that resolution so that that's kind of my read of her structure here um you mentioned earlier Matthew, that there were others who were writing metrical psalms, but that was for the interest of, of congregational singing, not for excellence in poetry. And that's one thing that I don't think that you could do with the Sydney Psalms, the Sydney Psalter, um, because the two of them, and especially Mary, are so inventive structurally. The metrical psalms the other metrical psalms that were being written at this time were being composed in such a way that you could teach a congregation how to sing a metrical psalm and they could sing any psalm following that method. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it was, it was meant to enable the maximum number of the maximum amount of psalm singing with the minimum amount of music teaching. <laughs> but the Sydney Psalter you're just going to have to reinvent melody every time you're going to have to, every one of them is going to be utterly distinct. Um, it would be very difficult to find any kind of pattern of congregational singing that could be easily taught and applied over the mass. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, this Psalm is, is a really good example of that, um, that consistent inventiveness that's shown throughout, throughout the piece. But then it works mm -hmm. in, in, that, in that way. The, the form, uh, I think, can be read as a kind of metaphor of the content. And I think, I mean, you mentioned the, the musical thing. I think you're totally right. You'd have to write a new musical accompaniment to every psalm because in the 128 psalms that, uh, that Mary herself wrote, um, uh, the 128 poems, I should say, because Psalm 119 includes uh, uh, 22 individual poems. She only repeats herself twice. There's only two. Uh, it, it's remarkable, and and I should say two other uh, two other psalms copy forms that Philip had used earlier in the book. But I mean, that's that's a remarkable amount of different kinds of form for poetry. Mm -hmm. I think um, you you strike a lot of the the salient thoughts about the poetic form of this particular uh, poem. One of the things I think that's interesting in here um, is I, I could be just seeing things, but I think to some extent there might be a little bit of concrete poetry. You you've mentioned kind of the weird shape of the lines, how you have these long lines, short lines, slightly longer, and then a long line again or longish line again and to my eyes it almost gives the appearance that we have a, a staircase from the bottom level up to the top level so you get oh, kind of heaven on top you get heaven on top and earth below and then a staircase between the 
between the two lines. And uh, that I think that kind of um, illustrates something that Mary is, is focusing on in the psalm, perhaps more so than in, in the text itself. She's really emphasizing the highness uh, of God. So he's highest God. His love is mounted far above each star. He ascends as high as highest heaven can give thee place. Uh, but the poet, by contrast, is treading this earthly ball on earth below. Uh, he needs God to send his love and verity down from heaven. I mean, these are all the, her own words. And even the very first line, he needs to fly to God, not just hide with God, but to fly to God. Um, <clears throat> and so the staircase of the poetry kind of gives us this conduit, a figurative way of showing man's need for God reaching up to him and God simultaneously reaching down his love and glory to man. Um, it's it's an interesting poem, but it's 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 weird. And I'm glad you read it at the beginning of this episode because it's tricky to do. I mean, <laughs> oh, golly, um, that was that was I, I you know, if 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 that sounded straightforward, dear listener, whew, I was sweating bullets. <laughs> One line iambic pentameter, two lines iambic diameter. Two lines, trochaic tetrameter, one line, <laughs> iambic hexameter. And that's how it goes. It is hard to do. And yeah. You did it well. <laughs> so, yeah, I, lo- I love the, 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 the possibility of shaped verse here. I, I would love to see this in, in, its, um, in, the, in, in its manuscript form um, to see if, if what, we're, what we're observing here in the, the, the website that we're looking at, the additions that we have access to, um, if that's you know the, the the what are they approximating? What do they what do they see in the manuscript that is being presented here? Um, it reminds me that uh, another another Herbert George Herbert, um, a a cousin, a nephew, a a relation. They, of, they are relatives. Of yeah. Mary Sidney Herbert by marriage. Um, but but of you know of the next generation, uh, I, I was reminded as I was looking at these psalms of his of George Herbert's work and his similar structural inventiveness. Um, he very seldom does the same thing in any poem. Um, he's constantly coming up with uh, with new new poetic forms um, in a way that I think finds its precedent here and. Uh, I, I would be um, it, it would please me mightily to think that you know Aunt Mary in some way imparted shaped a verse to you know later George. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned George Herbert, and maybe that's kind of a natural place to start winding down our our chat here. Are there any final thoughts you have on Herbert or devotional poetry more generally? Yeah, I just the comparison with George Herbert, who's probably better known. Um, if you like George Herbert, you owe it to yourself to dip into the Sydney Psalter. If you love Herbert's inventiveness, um, if you love the ways that he uh, stretches the English language through that um, formal inventiveness, um, come see the earlier generation of the family doing it. Uh that, that would be one thing that I would note. Um, also, just sort of by comparison, look up, um, you know, uh, early English translations of, uh, I believe, the Genevan Psalter um, to, to have a sense of um, what 
other translation English translations of the Psalms in meter for worship um, would have looked like to see the degree to which um, uh, Philip and Mary, um, the Moses and Miriam <laughs> of Elizabethan England, are really swinging for the fence, uh, and and everyone, um, not 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 just trying to go for the good enough rhyme that will get it done, um, but really, uh, every in every poem, um, trying to to give give their poetic uh, uttermost, as it were. Uh, it also sort of lets you know why the Psalms were so important. Um, the Psalms were absolutely at the center of uh, the uh, the office of the uh, the canonical hours in uh, Roman Catholic worship, but they were also at the center of uh, Reformed Genevan worship. And so the the idea of the Psalms as central to worship is something that modern evangelicals in particular might find strange um you know the, the use of music and worship for evangelical protestants is not unusual right for us um music is worship practically um the idea that that worship would be limited to bound by or focused on centered on the psalms is something that would seem strange and perhaps in, to some degree artistically restrictive, uh, I think the Sydney Psalter is helping, is, is a helpful voice to say a psalm-centered worship needn't be artistically restrictive to the artist in the church, but rather a different kind of challenge. Um, how do you continue to sing the psalms now in the poesy, in the music that you have now? How do you keep the Psalms in conversation with the living art? I won't add any more to that other than to say, sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> if our listeners do want to read the Psalms of Mary Sidney Herbert and her brother, Philip, um, we'll link the, the ones that we've talked about today in the show notes. It's a little hard to find all of these psalms online. There isn't one website that will just give you to them one after the other. Um, you can go to the Internet Archive and find mm. a 1963 edition of the psalms uh, by J.C.A. Rath, Amel. And uh, that, that's called the Psalms of Sir Philip Sidney and the Countess of Pembroke. And uh, that would be one way to do it. Or you can also get a, uh, a physical copy from Oxford World Classics. I have a copy of that coming in the mail, actually, but I haven't seen it in person. But I mean, it's Oxford World Classics. You know, it's going to be good. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> David, though, I think you're going to be hosting uh, next time around. What can we look forward to then? So if we record in our regular schedule, um, we'll be recording our episode. The episode won't drop on, but we will be recording on um, April the 12th, which uh, is a significant date in the history of English Christianity. It was the date on which uh, King Edwin of Northumbria was baptized. And the conversion of that particular king is an important moment in uh, the Venerable Bede's history of the English Church. 
So we will be looking at some of the different moments in the conversion of King Edwin and thinking about um, thinking about conversion, thinking about uh, what does it mean for a person to convert to faith in Christ and what does it look like for a people um, to to convert in a in, in a kind of larger cultural sense. Hmm. That sounds interesting. I'm looking forward to, to having that conversation. Well, thanks for joining us for this week's discussion. If you have any comments, you can let us know by sending an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or by visiting our website at www.christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of David Grubbs, as well as the absent Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, this is Matthew Block saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.